Hi, and welcome to another episode of Let's Chat with Shell Griggs. I'm your host, Shell, and today we have an interesting um, chat. This one is about, um, it's actually true crime as well, and it's about uh, a case, and it's going to be called Let's Chat the Sad Case of um, Courtney Smith. So Courtney Smith is a child who in the early 90s uh, was abducted from her home in the middle of the night from a bed that she slept in with her sisters. Now, curious enough, she was not the oldest. Uh, She was three at the time of her abduction. She was the middle child and her sister was awake when she was abducted. Um, And I have to include or add that these, this abduction happened um, in the South. And I think that's important because of America's problems with racial injustice um, and the criminal justice system, just the failures in, in the criminal justice system. It's very frustrating. Um, And so it's important to mention where this happened. Um, So I'm going to give you guys a little background of the story and you can make of it what you will um, before I start to tell you how badly I think everyone in this case fumbled the ball. So she was from Nixobie County in Mississippi. Uh, The abduction happened uh, September 15th of 1990. Um, her body was found, um, her name is Courtney Smith. Her body was found after two days in a pond, 80 yards from her home, about 80 yards from her home. Um, so after an autopsy, she was, it was determined that she was raped and sexually assaulted and murdered and then thrown into the pond. And that she had multiple, quote, bite marks on her body. So, <laughs> of course, there being a witness in the case, the, the intelligent people in the city of Mississippi, uh, the criminal justice system, searched high and low for a suspect. And then they came up with this genius idea and I say this very sarcastically because this is this case is unprecedented and it's very frustrating because it was just done so unprofessionally. Everything was handled not like you would expect a child abduction case to be handled. For one, they had this character, this personality, this and he also worked for the sheriff's office. He was they called him Uncle Bucky. He was a character or a person who drew he had a kids variety show he was also a part of the sheriff's department which is totally weird and creepy and he would have probably been my first suspect just because what the heck uh but he he had this variety show where he would draw animals and have kids uh tell him what they saw so the police department in Mississippi decided that they wanted to have this man who has no experience um, even doing anything like this, no experience whatsoever of handling child cases, cases of child trauma or child murder. Um, And they used him the first time something I mean during this case for the first time pretty much and they asked him to draw what and to describe what Ashley saw Ashley is Courtney's older sister the five-year-old so she starts describing a suspect that had and this is from the real transcripts a quarter in his ear So she said a quarter and he says an earring and she says a quarter and an earring in his ear. This man proceeds to ask what was his name? She says his name was Trevon. 
So this man proceeds to try to draw this this person he suspects and the only person that they can come up with is her mother's ex-boyfriend. Now, the ex-boyfriend had an earring in his ear and his name was Levon. So the they ask her, they actually in the interrogation or in the interview with the child, I say interrogation because the questions in the transcript, if you guys listen and watch, actually her case is featured on um, on a documentary if you want to watch more about it. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you guys about that at the end. But if you listen to the transcript, she actually, I mean, it's very leading. If you read the transcripts, it's very leading. The questions he's asking her, the type of questions he's asking her, they're just looking for a suspect or anything to try to uh, put this case to bed because there was a lot of obviously there's a lot of public concern and quite frankly outrage regarding the fact that this three-year-old has been found like this um, and it's also very terrifying and this was in the 90s so it wasn't as common as a thing as it is now where ch child abductions happen um, and definitely they didn't have the type of forensic uh kind of know how then back in the 90s so yeah they called in a bite mark as or expert because of these quote bite marks that were found on Courtney's body and he took dental impressions and he and I'm gonna quote them said without a doubt these were a match so that these bite marks matched the victims the bark bite marks from the victim matched the teeth of Levon her mother's um, Courtney's mother's boyfriend ex-boyfriend so that seems like a, a slam dunk case so decades oh Oh, 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 I do not want to forget this important detail because it's actually what cracked this whole case wide open. So about I think it was some time in between because um, I was reading it and I think it was like four weeks or like, I mean, some time passed after Levon was uh, it was four months. It was four months after he was in prison. Another girl, another three year old. Um, Christina Johnson went missing and she lived in the same neighborhood. She was found days later in a, uh, a river. So the first Courtney was found in the pond. This girl was found in the river. She was also raped and murdered and she had multiple lacerations on her. So this mo was exactly the same mo as what happened with courtney smith same age same neighborhood little black girl this time they found her mother's the girls um i want to know i gotta i have to remember what he was to her it, i believe he was her mother's boyfriend as well because he was in the house at the time of the murder and there was no uh, sign of a forced entry. So they also did the same bite mark ex expert. They brought him in and he said that it was definitely a match. He said that same conclusive wording. Now, I have to explain this to you guys because you may think that I'm just a person that's on a rant or just really angry. But when... I was thinking about and considering forensic odontologists on, to be a, a career in that, to be a forensic dentist, basically. Um, in all of the forensic science, I was reading how many cases that forensics had helped solve. And bite mark evidence is one of the most unreliable um sources of evidence like you have to have that in comparison to other things um uh in in accompaniment with other things because 
teeth are bone and they can change, they can chip, um, and they can be similar. Teeth are not like a fingerprint. They're not unique. People can have a similar bite pattern and it's not, your bite pattern is not unique to you um, because people, even identical twins, you know, they're going to have a similar you know, bites and bite marks. So that that's not conclusive evidence by far. And the reason why I'm saying that is because both these cases, the cases of Christina and Courtney, neither of these cases had any other physical evidence other than the so-called bite marks that this expert blinked up and sent two men away for life in prison. The city, um, the county didn't even look any further. They didn't look at any other suspects. They had the two men they wanted behind bars. The one they arrested this time, uh, his name was Brooks Kennedy or uh, Kennedy Brewer. Um, his name, that's what his name was. So it was LaVon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer. So they locked them both up and time went on. So, of course, they convicted both men without much uh, bite mark evidence. And even the jury selection just seemed a little off. Like when you watch the documentary about it, you're going to be like, what the? Because we're told so much that slavery was so long ago. But you see two men and one of the men, oh, the white man, he's saying that this man, uh, LeVar LeVar Brooks, he actually was, his family worked on his family's plantation. And that's how they became friends and they knew each other. So that puts things in perspective for you. This is a really racist place. A place where people really don't care about the truth or the the fact. They just care about convicting somebody, anybody black and putting them behind bars for the rest of their lives they didn't take into consideration that the victims were in poor neighborhoods and there is a lot a lot more policing of the wrong things in poor neighborhoods and less of the the good things it's like police president presence in poor neighborhoods is not to protect and serve but to make sure that they can get their quota uh, or criminalize people who are impoverished. So that's my soapbox. I'm on that. That's it. So 16 years goes by and one of the men, and I believe it was Brewer, Kennedy Brewer, contacted uh, the Innocence Project and he wrote to them and he said, you know, we didn't, we did not commit these crimes, basically. Like, I want someone to take a look at the physical evidence because basically we didn't commit these crimes. So to put this in perspective, the exact same MO, two different guys at two different times were arrested, right? What I begin to think about when I when I think about these two young girls, these two babies, these three year olds, is even when you're watching the documentary and you hear these men even the 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 doctor who did the autopsy how he talks about them is not like he's talking about humans but just corpses and he like he has something better to do with his time the way they handled this crime was so ridiculous so ah. It's just nonchalant to me. Like it, they didn't really want to find child killers. Because I don't really think they were seeing these children as children. I think the police department there was just trying to get a conviction. And trying to um, see somebody behind bars. Anybody. And it didn't matter who it was as long as it was a black face. And they really didn't put a lot of energy into it. I mean, they wanted a conviction and they were going to get that conviction by any means. 
And then they bring in this expert, this so-called expert, who I don't know what he's an expert in, because honestly, the first thing you really learn out of school uh, for any of this stuff is that this is a science. And what you learn in science is that all of it's a theory. None none of it can be said with 100% accuracy. And even DNA, they don't say DNA is 100% accurate. They say 99.99%. And the reason they never give you that 100% is because nothing can be proven without a shadow of a doubt based off of science, okay? There's always a slither of reasonable doubt with any of it. So even when the when I was reading the story um, and I was reading more about it, I was like, how are they going to convict two people based off of the word of this other man, this man who, who this Dr. West. Um, and then you have this clown, Uncle Bucky, that they brought in. And I really, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. They literally brought this man in from a variety show and had him do a criminal sketch and then they convicted men based off of his his word I was like this is insane this seems like this doesn't seem like a story when you listen to it it doesn't seem like something that could have really happened it is so out of place it's so far out that it's just like okay did this really happen but it did they actually trusted this man this clown Uncle Bucky and his revelations that they've convicted so much so that they convicted two men and these men spent 16 years of their lives behind bars based off of the word of these two clowns this forensic odontologist mr west and then this uncle bucky character and i'm just i mean my mind is like alone because I'm thinking like whoa you convicted this man based off of the word of these people and a child who was asleep at night and it was only five years old and she, the the to add insult to injury and see this is the part about it that almost gets lost when you read this transcript she said all kinds of things I think she said the murderer got got away or escaped in an airplane um that he pulled a quarter out of her ear and all this stuff i mean it was just a bunch of outlandish stuff like she was when she was talking in in her whole uh ashley smith which is courtney smith the first victim's uh sister her oldest sister she actually she actually says a lot of weird stuff that she saw that night so the jury never got to hear this and I think that's critical in a case like this because you're establishing a case based off of the word of one little girl who gave you a name and there are no physical evidence that places him at the scene at the time um and her you're basing it off of her description of him and then she also describes other things that are untrue which makes her what we call an unreliable witness she's five like i don't remember a crab from when i was five and even when i was five like you have to think about it like five-year-olds th see things from a very magical perspective and especially at that age she's like well i he pulled a quarter out of my ear and he had a quarter in his ear and you know she only mentions the earring after after he mentions the earring but she says as an adult because they interview her as an adult she's like i don't remember a lot from that night i just remember going to see uncle bucky and i'm like okay so the crazy part is that they take DNA evidence and both men are excluded from being um, being a part of the case. And so they were set free. They were exonerated based off of DNA evidence. And then we have to revisit Ashley's testimony, like her testimony that put these men away. This is what she said. She said she saw 
a quarter in his ear and he drew a quarter from her sister's ear and then she said he was wearing a Halloween mask and left the house on an airplane. So it's just like the forensics did match. Then you have the word of a five-year-old uh, that, and then, and it's just crazy. And then the name she gave was Trayvon, and they found a Levon. <laughs> like Trey and La is totally different. And I don't care what any of the people that were working on the case say. Regardless of how they felt at the time, they were just too emotional. They were just ready to close a case. And even when evidence said that they didn't have the right man because a similar murder with a similar MO happened, they were too prideful to say, hey, we got it wrong. We thought it was this one man because of based off of what we got from this clown, Uncle Bucky and her sister, but instead, they were so prideful, they couldn't even admit that that was a possibility. So they go about and they say some crap like, oh, well, it was, you know, he basically fit, fit the description. And you have to, and I guess I, I'm doing this series more so to turn you guys into people who listen to things critically that don't take everybody's word for everything. Stop reading what you see on Facebook and believing that to be fact. And, you know, people are putting all kinds of stuff in these messenger chats, these WhatsApp chats. Chats, start to think critically for yourself. First and foremost, nothing that a five-year-old can be taken on a very few I would say very few five-year-olds have uh, an inactive imagination they all have very active imaginations and in their imaginations they're going to think things happen that didn't I worked with that age group and it was amazing how much crazy you know fun we had by using our imaginations and creating this alternate uh, situation that you know we go to the land and the land is made out of brownies and gumdrops and this is a five-year-old's imagination that's where they go in their minds most of them don't know enough to either tell the truth uh, if you pressure them a little bit they may change their stories if you lead them and try to give them the answers they'll take them because they're still at an age where they desire to please the person they're talking to and then you bring somebody that they freaking idolize or loved a lot and they give you words to say and you just say those words you don't think about the consequences of your actions because you're five and nobody questions it because it's like she was there. She would know. And also, I think there's a lot of racism at play here. I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, prejudice that went into the decisions that they made to arrest these two men because they had no other physical evidence except that they both knew the children. And that doesn't make a lot of sense when you really think about it, because although most kidnappings and murders and people who harm other children those people are mostly people that know the victim there are times when it's a stranger <laughs> and so these two men were completely cleared um based off of the dna evidence collected um and just with dna technology and the other men um the uh, so in 2000 I think it was like 2008 they were let go from prison so they spent a long time in prison that's basically 18 years in prison um, for something that they didn't do uh, they were freed on February 15th of 2018 so they spent about because they were arrested in 1990 so roughly 17 years they spent in prison for a crime that they did not commit. Then another person uh, came forward. His name was Christopher. I think it was Christopher Johnson. 
Let me get this right. Oh, it was Justin Albert Johnson. He came and he was a, he actually said he was responsible for it before, for the murders of both the girls. And then he goes on to say that he didn't, in fact, bite the victims. That, 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 that was absurd that he would not have bitten them. So they found out that the bite marks, so-called bite marks, were actually caused by crawfish. And so the evidence, the so-called evidence used to convict them wasn't even accurate. And that's why you can't go around saying crap like this is 100% accurate. And it's like, this is, this is crazy. This is wild. This is unnecessary. So it's just like, you can't make these sweeping gestures now this justin albert johnson i want to look him up because i i've never seen his face but i can just imagine uh they didn't look very hard um but he just they didn't look good for him and it's just like you you wanted to pin it on you wanted to pin it on these two men and it's like it, it's just crazy so I found something and it says that he was off, on again off again troublemaker uh, and he was initially lined up as a murder as the murder happened but because of bias they dismissed his conviction and uh, bias in the arrests and convictions, they dismissed his involvement with the cases. Later, when tests were being conducted, a match was made with his DNA and it came back positive. So because of bias, these cases went cold. And that's insane. These cases, they were, they were su- shown as or seen as solved and these men were locked up. Thank God they were not killed how many people have died on death row because of just bias in the case, like thinking you have a suspect and neither of these men, you know, did anything that was said. And then this woman said this man had a quarter in her. This little baby said that this man had a quarter in his ear and they never questioned that. That would have been the first statement. Like what? And you can hear them like, okay, that doesn't sound accurate, but still fishing for more. Like, that's when you cut the cameras, cut the tape. Like, okay, this child is an unreliable witness because of her age. She's still going to give us some notes of fantasy and some um, some accuracy. And then just watching Law & Order SVU, you already know that they see those as unreliable. Most people with, a, with common sense see those testimonies of children in distress as unreliable to begin with because the mind will break in little ways if you witness your sister being abducted your mind would just kind of break and then you would see a, her killer in everything so in this in all this in this whole case the true crime case of courtney smith and seeing that two innocent men were locked up for years after her murder that that shows you that people especially the police officers are not always looking to protect and serve the community some of them are just looking to get a conviction to put somebody behind bars to ease their own um, load and to get an easy conviction they're not even i don't think a lot of them and I know DNA wasn't really available at the time but they had no other physical evidence so they didn't really question a lot of the things that they heard about this these men they just kind of went with it because these men looked good for the crime so in the future what I would suggest is when you hear any of these stories like you know you see this the news you see the headlines question everything stop just taking this load from the media and just 
taking it all in and believing the sensation and the hype. I always ask questions anytime there's any case with anything involved. Like, show me the proof that this man or this woman was involved in this before we start the lynch mob. And that's not what they did in this case. The criminal justice system failed Mr. Brooks and Mr. Brewer. And so, uh, you know, just keep that in mind uh, as headlines come up in the future, because there is going to be more and more headlines with things that people have done. Make sure you know the facts, read the evidence and make an informed decision for yourself before you go believing that stuff, because a lot of the stuff is just circumstantial evidence. They don't have anything else. So until next time, let's chat. Okay, so maybe I should do an intro to my new murder mystery um, theme, but I don't know how long I'm going to stick with this. It's just that so much stuff is going on in the world, and I guess my appeal to murder mystery is that a lot of the cases that I watch actually are solved. And so you start with a problem and then you actually end up with a solution with everything going on uh, in our in our world and the disgusting stuff that you're seeing. There's no neat end or I mean, there's never a neat end with murder mystery either, but there's no there's no solutions as of yet. It's just like no justice being done or, you know, no comfortable answer or no there's no peace in a lot of it it's just this is what's going on and it's crazy so this murder mystery um time that I have is or you know these chats that I'm having is actually helping because Helping with my mental health, helping to kind of ease some of the pressure from everything that's going on surrounding these um, these murders, and I have a lot of pressure on me, and I really need to take some time off from it all. Um, but these podcasts have become release releases from you know things that I thought I knew, so. Um, or even just just life in general is a nice nice break from it all break from all of the madness because there's a lot going on um 2020 has been so so much stuff going on and there's we're not even halfway through this year and I won't declare that this year is bad I won't speak that over that but it's been interesting so um that's a long intro pretty much let me just get to the reason why you guys are here this murder mystery and this one we're gonna call the case of lavender doe so y'all it's a lot going on it includes john wayne myspace and internet sleuths and I gotta say, in this in this instance, people not minding their business actually turned out to be a good thing, because this story was kind of blown out of the water by these people who were just kind of relentless and obsessed with this case, and wouldn't let it go until they had a name for this body that was found. So let's start. So to start the story off, I got to tell you about the chaos that ensued and how Lavender Doe was even discovered. So her body was discovered on a day, on I believe it was on October, um, October twenty eighth. Don't don't quote me on that. But this body of these two men were walking, and they saw a body. Uh, excuse me guys the she her body was found on the morning of october 29th of, in 20 2006 um and it was burned so badly it was unrecognizable 
the strangers that found her thought someone had set uh, a mannequin on fire, but they said the smell of the burning actually alerted them that it wasn't just a, a mannequin. It was actually a human being. So they called, they called the police and um, the police found and discovered that it was a, a young girl. And they put her age range from 19 to 26 um, when they discovered her body. Um, so they began to try to piece together this mystery. Um, it was so close to Halloween. These men thought like maybe it was a prank or something like that. But no, 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 it, it was a body. So um, also what was notable about the body of uh, Jane, or Jane Doe at this time, who later became known as Lavender Doe because of the lavender sh- shirt she was found uh, when she was found wearing when her body was discovered. Um, what was notable is she had forty dollars in her pocket, um, and you know, of course, the notable color of her shirt. Um, but one thing that stuck out about this case and probably sent immature sleuths on a down a rabbit hole um, is that her body had perfect teeth. It wasn't like she was a, you know, her, her body presented as a person who uh, was a transient, you know. And even one of them said, you know, girls who have because they discovered that her body, she she had blonde hair with strawberry blonde highlights and perfect teeth. And people were saying that girls like this don't go missing um, without someone reporting them. And I think that's what stumped a lot of people about this case. Because they were like, here we have this white woman, blonde hair. You know, this is not... People don't just go missing without the people that look like her don't go missing without someone looking for them uh, or reporting them missing or something like that. So because no one had come forward or reported this girl missing, I think it threw a lot of people for a loop and they were like, well, she can't be transient because she has perfect teeth, which honestly, I got to say that is that kind of thinking is what I feel helped to make this case go cold because no one no one saw it as maybe like it could have been the body of someone who was sex trafficked or you know maybe kidnapped as a kid and then um, you know trapped into a life of sex slavery it was everyone just was was assuming that this was a woman who pretty much had a family, kids, who was married, um, you know, white picket fence because of her her appearance. Um, and it wasn't until later when people stopped doing that and just following evidence and where DNA trails led that they even cracked this mystery. So these three internet sleuths, um, and I call them internet sleuths. They had different titles. It, one of them was, um, well, all three of them were uh, genealogists. And so they just study DNA and, you know, they, it's kind of, it's all volunteer. So it's not like this is, are this people's, these, this is their profession uh, per se. These people just they volunteer um so they got involved with the dna doe project and um they pretty much cracked the case wide open um like they watch they they're the kind of people these people are the kind of people that watch id discovery um you know, they always watch it. They're the faithful watchers of that show, um, those type of shows. And, um, these people are just, you know, they know these cases kind of inside out. 
And so that lends to and leads to um, kind of like a certain, I mean, it helps you to understand these people better because you're thinking like, what the heck, man? Um, Because a lot of times you see people who are just like really involved in the internet they're in these fit internet chat groups and things like that. They are often not people who do any good. But these people, I mean, they cracked this case wide open. So they started to look for her. Um, and one of them was like talking about how they stay up all night um, on their laptops talking to other people. And their families want to know what they're doing. But it's, they, they ended up meeting up together, um, cause I guess they have like this, they try to solve crime. Um, this group, this genealogy group tries to solve crime using, um, genetics and things like that and genetic profiles, um, but like DNA stuff too, you know? So these people got together um, and they started digging through people's public records and MySpace profiles um, to find out if anyone had been reported missing fitting this other girl's um, description, this Jane Doe's description. Um, And they, from this chat room, they nicknamed the the girl lavender doe because of the shirt the color of the shirt she was wearing um and there were like tons of speculation surrounding her especially about her teeth some people even said that because of her perfect teeth her parents must have been dentist um i mean it, it was just a lot of assumptions that were going on And I feel like the wrong assumptions based off of how she looked actually prevented them from solving the case. I've said that once. I'm going to say it again. Because, you know, a lot of times when you watch these shows, I think part of the fun of it is, or I won't say fun, because it's never fun to hear about someone's death. But I think part of the allure of it is to make up what you, or to assess in your mind what you think happened to the victim. And who you think did it. And I think that's part of the attraction to these shows that you see on ID Discovery, Forensic Files, and these these type of things. Is that you want to be a sleuth yourself. You want to figure it out. You want to solve the case. Um, So a lot of people had theories. And I'm not saying theories are wrong. But they can be dangerous and they can be biased. Especially based off of what our preconceived notions are about people people with perfect teeth and strawberry blonde hair just don't go missing without people reporting it um so they begin to this group will they pretty much sent their theory uh to a detective um and the detective working the case was named eddie hope um so eddie pretty much got this theory and he had already ruled out because they they watched this show and they pretty much narrowed Lavender Doe down to two girls who had been reported missing um, and he had already ruled ruled them out um, so when they sent his theory that he had already ruled those girls out so he's like no nah, it's not them but he was just happy that people were also taking another look at the case because pretty much the case had gone cold for the police as well so you know, they, these three people that were involved in all of this genealogy and, and DNA began to look deeper. Um, so they began to, they put her, her this Lavender Doe's uh, DNA into this uh, genealogy um, profile. And they found out pretty much that the girl was of Czech descent and they found out like she had distant relatives and none of them knew or had reported a girl missing. Um, 
so all I mean they went through this long process of of kind of finding people and then those people saying no I don't know who you're talking about or no one's been reported missing in our family so they've on a long shot find uh like a first cousin removed um and then they discover that Lavender Doe has a nephew possibly on MySpace. So they look him up on MySpace and um, they find out that they pretty much find who they believe to be Lavender's mom. But unfortunately, she passed before Lavender could become be reported missing. It was about a month before they found her dead um her mother had passed away pretty much so that's why they're thinking now okay that's why she hasn't been reported missing and they find out that her father has um a daughter and that's kind of like her stepsister and so they begin to look at this angle of it and the story that unravels is so sad so they pretty much and this is where where it gets kind of weird they find based off of the dna profile they find that this man and this is when i said this is where john wayne comes in his name isn't john wayne it's joseph wayne but i just thought it's so doggone close like it is the south <laughs> so they find this man uh, who was at a certain location um, and he says that he met with this girl like they match the semen um, of this man um, who confessed to sleeping with this girl this Jane Doe um, in exchange for money and then um, he said he didn't, but he didn't, didn't kill her. And then later he confesses to killing Lavender Doe and another girl that came up missing that he knew. And he just pretty much confessed because the police had him trapped. Like he didn't have any other, um, like he didn't have any other defense. Um, but his case is still pending and his lawyers won't talk to anybody or, you know, answer any questions because his case is still pending in court. Um, but this happened back in 2018 or 2008. Sorry, guys, 2008. This happened back in 2008. It has Excuse me, guys. It has taken that yawn is not for this story. It's just my body's natural reaction is <laughs> just sitting in one spot for so long. But anyways, um, so this what I think was intriguing about the story is that he confesses and then he takes that confession away. Like he pleads not guilty when he's he's charged. That's interesting. But what I think what's more interesting is that the story doesn't end because him confessing to uh, being the one who kills her doesn't stop the quest to find out who she is Um, because we still don't have a name. So they're they're searching. Um, They find this out about this other man and he gives them some idea of what how pretty much the circumstances and how he first encountered the victim but that still doesn't tell us who she is so these internet sleuths uh, are feeling like they got into a dead end so ultimately they contact the girl who um genetically is her the jane doe's um half half sister or the lavender lavender doe's half sister and they begin to ask questions and they discovered that um lavender doe um whose name they actually found out um at this time um 
they find that she pretty much had a tumultuous life. She lived with her mom. Her, first, her, her mom abandoned her. Then her dad abandoned her. Um, so she was shuffled to family. But because of her, and, and they pretty much shucked her off on her half-siblings, who, you know, through some, as teenagers tend to be, there's some rebellion, there's some partying, there's some, some boyfriends involved. But they pretty much, all of her youth, um, she was just kind of tossed from home to home of, you know, family members, half-siblings, that kind of thing. And so she had this, finally she had this best friend. And they had a falling out because she, you know, she'd gotten involved in drugs. And so she'd stolen, I think, a PlayStation was mentioned. And guys, this story is like so sad because it's like we look back on these things. um, And the girl even says that in the story, her best friend, I think her best friend's name was Bobby. And Bobby ended up saying something like, um, you know, uh, I wonder where she would be um, if it had, if I hadn't um, kicked her out. Um, and then she reflects and she says, you know what, I would probably be dead because they discover that both girls have a history of drug use and heroin use specifically for Lavender Doe. So we find out Lavender Doe's name was actually Dana. Um, And Dana has a family and she does have people. Um, She has a sister, a half sister that cares about her, but you know, she'd left, she just left town. And she told her, she said, you're my last person. Nobody else will help me. And I think that is so ridiculous because when you think about it, all of the bias in this case, the reason why the case kind of went cold was that people were thinking she has a family, someone's looking for her, she's a wife, she's a mother because of her physical appearance. And in reality, this was a girl that um, was pretty much tossed around her whole life. Um from family member to family member and you know struggled with drug use and um, it's sad it really is sad uh, because I think those words will never leave me is that you're my last person nobody else will help me and that's the last exchange you have with your friend before she leaves so what we discover is that her name was Dana And Dana joined one of those traveling magazine companies, like those magazine selling companies uh, that solicit sales for magazines. And um, that's where she encountered her killer. So she was at a Walmart in Longview, Texas, which is away from Florida where her family and her friends lived. Um, And so... She ended up in Longview, Texas. She encountered the killer in the parking of a wall, parking lot of a Walmart. Um, he says that she approached him to buy uh, magazines and he didn't buy. It. And then she tried to sell him lingerie and he still didn't accept it. Um, and then he said that she tried. She consented to sex with him for money. Um, He paid her and then get this guys. She tried to steal money from him. So he decided to strangle her to death and burn her body up. And when he when she said that he decided to do this or when he said Joe Wayne, you know, kind of like John Wayne. (laughs) <laughs> That's why I think I remembered his name. I have to do things to remember people's name, guys. So, here's the weird part. He said he killed her with the $40 still in his pocket. and uh, in, in her pocket because she'd earned that money. That's so weird because 
first he said he killed her because of the money and then he left money on her body like what is that like there that is just such a weird detail and I don't I don't know if it I feel like it speaks to his mental state um, but I don't, again, I can't say any of this thing legally because it's still a court case that's pending. And it's just, yeah, it's hot mess express because it's like this girl, this, this person you encounter has value, has life, has people who care about her, has a person who cares about her. But it wasn't at all what people thought. Everyone saw her because of her looks, her physical appearance, that she would be someone that would be being looked for. Or, you know, she was, her sister and her friend were looking for her, but they thought she'd be a wife and a mother based off of her physical appearance. And I think that's where a lot of us miss a lot of stuff, is just by looking on the surface and judging people and situations based off of how they look and her perfect teeth and all of this. I mean, if you saw this girl based off of their physical description, if you saw this girl, um, you would think, oh my gosh, like that, that girl has everything going for her, just judging by the physical appearance. But in reality, she was suffering. She was suffering from heroin use and abuse, um, which kind of lends a little validity to what um, Joe Wayne said about her trying to rob him. And then um, because people who have struggled with, you know, addiction, they will, I mean, addiction is disease, so they'll do anything to get get that high or to get to those drugs so but I mean even then like I'm not gonna make any assumption about this girl's last moves the things she did before she was last seen alive because someone trying to rob you is not a reason to strangle them to death strangling takes a lot of anger and frustration and Joanne has also been associated with another body um, of someone he was close to, um, and he he confessed to that, which even got brought to light uh, his involvement with Lavender Doe. But it's, I find it so interesting that he even confessed to both of those things, and then and then pleads not guilty for killing them. I think it speaks to mental state and cognitive distance dissonance, like you can uh, you can distance yourself in a way. Um, from your involvement in their murder and say things like it was in self-defense or they tried to kill me or they tried to rob me or, you know, they tried to scam me. Someone doing all of that, if you catch them, especially, you know, given her physical appearance, she wasn't a huge girl. Like, it wasn't like he couldn't, you know, apprehend her, catch her, and then call the cops. He decided to take it a bit further and I think that's where the lines blur because when you see someone who's living like a transient life I think people just value them less they're like well nobody's going to be looking for them and unfortunately in Dana's case nobody even knew where to look because she had she disappeared and with this traveling magazine sales company so they finally put a name to her and her name is Dana so Lavender Doe is no longer just Lavender Doe. They discovered that she had been born in September of 1985. And I think the most, uh, I think, shocking um, thing about Dana Lynn Dodd is she was born just a few days after me. In the same year I was born, she would have been my age. And it's so sad because I remember encountering around around th- that age that she died at. I remember up my own story, and that's another story for another day, encountering these traveling magazine sales people. And y'all, it's crazy. 
to think that these people live such a transient life that they are trapped into this life and that's kind of what the article was saying in the Atlantic and the article was actually written um, the name of the author was Sarah Zhang she actually she said that this uh, this type of the type of company that Sarah or Dana Lynn Dodd was working for uh, traps the people that work for them with violence and drug abuse and that's kind of sad but um I met encountered someone like that so that's another story or a different day um but yeah that's the curious case of lavender doe mystery solved and I hope you guys are enjoying this series I'm going to try to put out more content like this that is my goal um but yeah and this story just blows blows the mind but um at the end of the day it really is telling about how we feel about people and how we view things and how we can tend to have a bias and sometimes the bias is counterproductive even if the bias is based off of positive stereotypes so um if you're a sleuth like me just keep that in mind um and until next time let's chat